Second Peter. Tonight we're going to Second Peter chapter one. Last week I wanted to go through this, and we went we went through something else. So this week seemed good to take you through the. This is one of the more simple texts that include the gospel. It's a simple, short version. First Peter is a longer version. It's more complicated, uh, or I should say, more descriptive. It's kind of complicated in that. The, the, the translation from Greek to English is very poor in First Peter, so I tend to not go there a lot because I might as well just diagram it up and show you how, you know, what it should say as opposed to what it says. Peter, a lot of Peter's that way, unfortunately, First Peter. The second Peter's a little bit more straightforward, and it's, uh, it, it does a great job at laying out the uh, gospel fairly quickly. And then the application of the gospel, right, just jumps right into it. So I'm just going to read for the sake of it, starting in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does he say bondservant? Just as a footnote to our discussion. <laughs> Beth raised her hand. Why is he bondservant? I thought we were children of God. Are we bondservants or are we children of God? Huh? Their flesh has been bought and paid for. Because though our spirit is God's child, and it is fully new, and it is fully created by God, and is fully a partner of the divine nature, as he's going to talk about here, our flesh has not been made new. It is only paid for, but it has not been picked up. And we talk about the two sides of redemption. Redemption is both the payment and the pickup. Right? If you redeem something, you can go online and redeem it. You pay for it. But then you can go pick it up at the store. Well, sometimes the, the concept of redemption in the Bible sometimes is the payment and the pickup, and sometimes it's just the payment and not the pickup. For instance, our bodies have been redeemed through a payment, but have not been delivered through a resurrection. Right? But our spirit has been both paid for and picked up. In other words, our inner man is a new creation, and therefore the redemption is complete. Whereas we await the redemption of our body, as the scripture says, well, we do not await the redemption of our spirit, which is the real person we are. We are not our bodies. We are waiting for the final installment of the aspect of redemption when it comes to the flesh. Therefore, the flesh is a servant because it was paid for by God and then it was given to Jesus Christ. Every one of our bodies, if you're in Christ, your body was paid for through the death of Christ. And then it was purchased by God the Father particularly. Now, God the Father owns it. Now, what is he going to do with it? He, said, he says, what I'm going to do with your body is I'm going to designate it as a servant. And I'm going to designate it as a servant to Jesus Christ specifically. Not just a servant, but a bond servant. That is to say, a permanent slave. Not a temporal employee. <laughs> that is to say, when you leave worship with the body of Christ, you're not leaving to go back to your old life. A bond servant was a permanent slave. 
Therefore, whether you're away from the body of, the, of Christ or you're with the body of Christ, you're always God's bondservant in the flesh. You are God's son in the spirit or his child. So it's important to understand the distinction because you have Paul constantly saying, we're children of God, sons of God. We're no longer under slavery, right? And on the other hand, he says, I'm a bondservant. Well, servant is slavery. Correct. Spiritually speaking, we are free. Don't bind yourself again to a yoke of slavery. Completely free in Christ, right? The Spirit um, has set us free from the law of sin and death. We're free from the law. We're free from slavery of the law. But what we're not free from is our enslavement to Christ in the flesh. That body, our bodies, belong to the Father, and He has designated them as Jesus Christ's possession for His personal and particular use. You know what that reference was from? My own personal, particular use. Pride and prejudice. <laughs> That's right. And so it's, an under, it's a very important thing when you read this little moment here. You have to understand how God views your body. You are not your own. You are bought with a price, right? So you don't own your body. The Father owns your body. There'll be a time when God doesn't need to own your body anymore. Why will God not own your body in the way that he owns it now? Because at the resurrection... We will no longer be a purchased possession. We'll be a new creation, right? So that makes us children, not possessions. But until we are resurrected physically, our body is not a child of God. Our body is a purchased possession of God. He owns it. And he is saying to us, his children spiritually, I want you to present your body as a living and holy sacrifice to God, specifically in relation to serving Jesus Christ. Right? Because that's the purchase. The whole point is God wants to glorify himself through his son. The only way to do that is to have us be the representative since Jesus is not here to do it. We are. And so the, the walk of faith is just this. It is me presenting, it's Romans 12, 1 and 2. It's me presenting my body as if it's living, though it's a body of death, though it's holy, though it is, un, it is not holy yet. I'm presenting it as if it's holy, though it's not. I'm presenting it as if it's living, though it's not. It's a body of death, a body of sin, it's going to die. If it was a body of life, then we wouldn't die. But it is not a body of life, it's a body of death. But I'm supposed to present it as if it is, in fact, a body of life. It is not holy, but I'm supposed to present it as if it is, in fact, holy. Why? Because God purchased it, and it proves that the spirit in me that God made is, in fact, alive and is, in fact, holy. Because otherwise, I wouldn't be able to do it. Religion can only hold you together so long before you have to fake it. Now, so bondservant, that's what Peter's referring to. That's what Paul refers to. That's what all of them refer, refer to when they talk about a bondservant. All believers are bondservants because God purchased the body. He purchased the spirit and the body 
It's just that he has already replaced the old spirit that your mother and your father birthed. He took it out, crucified it with Christ, killed it. You died with him. He rose you new from the grave. He made you a new creation. He placed you inside the body. And now the only thing that's left to be done is to resurrect the body. Until he does that, I present my slave body as a child of God spiritually. I present my slave body back to him against the grain of its desire to integrate into the world. I present it back to him as a servant of Jesus Christ. This brings him glory. It proves my faith is real because I have a wellspring of life bubbling up within that is natural and instinctive to me as a child of God. Moving on. You didn't know that was there, did you? So he says, Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ. Now his bondservant distinction has an extra description. Not everyone gets this, this description. It's an authoritative title. He is a sent one or a specific representative, an ambassador, if you will, of Jesus Christ in a very specific way. There are only 12 apostles of the Lamb. There's apostles of the apostles. This apostle just means sent one. But Paul was the 12th. And the reason why he was the 12th, even though Peter thought he was getting the 12th when he chucked those sheep bones, you know, and cast lots for, uh, to see who was going to replace Judas. And he got this guy, Matthias, and that wasn't the one who replaced Judas. The one who replaced Judas was Paul because Jesus called him. Yes, not <laughs> yeah. Jesus himself knocked him off his horse and you know, blinded him and said, you're going to be my guy, right? So Jesus called him. He was the 12th one of the Lamb. There are only 12. And he's, Peter was one of them and Paul was one of them. And by the way, that's so significant that the 12 gate, the gates of heaven will have the 12 apostles of the Lamb forever in the new heaven and the new earth. So every time you walk into the city of heaven for all eternity, you will recognize one of the 12 names and you'll understand that you, you had to believe their message that Jesus Christ gave to them to tell us. You had to believe their message to get into this city. Because that's the significant role they played. He says, to those who have, been, who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. That's an important statement. How many people uh, you know, have you seen, or how many, maybe even some of yourselves, throughout history, you see uh, people revere the minister as if he's someone special? Like, oh, he's the lordly one. His faith is great. Right? Now, there can be different gifts and different talents and different callings. But all of our faith is exactly the same. God only believes one thing. God only believes one truth. And you either agree with him or you don't. If you don't, you're not, you're not grooving. You're not synced up. If you do, you're high-fiving. You're, you're, you're grooving with God, right? You're, you're making it happen. So... You either know what you're doing or you don't know what you're doing. That's true of a kid. If a child tries to relate to their father or their mother on the basis of a false pretense, the father and the mother are spending all their time trying to get the kid to relate to them on the basis of who they actually are as opposed to on the basis of who they think they are. Right? Remember I've told you this. Uh, children will always, give, uh, will always 
see you, and this is true. Now, I just use the word always because it's true when they're young. Um, they will always assume the worst from the parent. Uh, and they'll always assume that you don't love them if they've done wrong and you have to discipline. Like you have to, they, they will see you in a false light and you have to tell them and communicate to them uh, and even discipline them not to view you wrongly concerning even discipline. That you love them, that has nothing to do with what you're trying to accomplish in this act. Right? Because God, he, when he communicates to us, he's communicating who he is. And your emotions can get you convinced he's someone else. Or your, your, your tradition. Or your history. Or just your own thoughts is making up junk. We were just talking about that. When people don't understand something, they just start making junk up. Start writing books, pontificating on it, acting all smart. And really just don't know what they're talking about. And so it's important to understand that God believes one thing. It's a faith of the same kind as ours. God has one belief. Jesus believes one thing. He believed what the Father believed. He's, the, in fact, the author and perfecter of faith. If you believe what they believe, then you can be saved. That's how salvation works. But you have to believe what they believe because it's a common faith or a one faith. One faith, one Lord, one baptism, right? One Holy Spirit, one God and Father, one Lord Jesus Christ, right? Ephesians 4. Very simple. Very simple stuff. It says, to those who received a faith as the same kind as ours, the apostles, put it this way, the apostles wrote down the word and they had to actually believe what they wrote. They didn't get a free pass on just getting the fact that they themselves got the word to write down. They had to study it and they had to believe it. In the same way that in 1 Peter he describes that the angels would read over the shoulders of the prophets trying to understand the times and the epics and the seasons. In the same way that in Ephesians 3 it says that the angels and the spiritual forces have to learn the gospel from Paul and Peter and John and Matthew's writings. It says from the apostles. In other words, the angels in heaven did not know the plan of God. They had to read it in the Bible the same way you and I do. The angels have to read the Bible to come to understand it. That's how they come to know. Because that's what the Word of God says. They had, to, they had to learn it from the apostles. It says from the church, which is the apostles. He says, To those who have received a faith of, a, of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, by the righteousness, what kind of righteousness are we discussing? Huh? Yes, God's righteousness, but what is God's righteousness based on in the New Covenant? Yeah, it's based upon not the law, right? But it's based upon the death of Jesus Christ to pay for sins. Because God's righteousness depended on Jesus dying, right? So when he says, by the righteousness, or based upon the righteousness... Our faith, the common faith that we all share is this, that our faith is based upon the righteousness of God and say, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is that his death was in fact the thing that established the, the righteousness of God and our righteousness through his death. 
It's very important you remember that, right? Romans 3, 1 John, or John chapter 3. For God so loved the world, problem, right? Love was the problem that he gave his only begotten son, right? That was the solution. He killed him. So, and if you believe that whole thing, then you can escape death and enter into eternal life. It's that simple. So the problem was God's love. And why was that a problem? Because it didn't do what was right. What did God not do that was, that was, he didn't kill Adam. He didn't kill Adam. What did he do instead? He gave him a promise. And the promise was, I'm going to crush his head and his heel and with my with the, with the seed of the woman and heel, his heel's going to be bruised. Basically, if you believe that, I'm going to work it out for you. Right? And in the meantime, you're going to suffer the reality that the world's going to be different and things are not going to be easy. But nonetheless, I'm going to work it out for you. He gave him a promise. He didn't kill him. This made God look like he did something wrong for a very long time, but he didn't. And why did he not do anything wrong? Because Christ was crucified before the foundation. Because Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. Because in God's plan, he had planned to kill Christ before he ever started creating anything. Because he knew the plan, he dialed out the plan because the plan was to make a family, a spiritual family in heaven for all eternity. That's the whole point. So when Adam and Eve blew it in the garden, he knew that was going to Of course happen. he knew that was going to happen. Right. And he already had a plan for redemption. Yep. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, he understood the whole thing. Redemption was set up before he actually created the angels, before he created the earth, before he created anything. So where do you think it fits in then when like when it talks about like before Noah when he repented of making mankind? Like there's but it says, really like yeah. an emotional response. What I'm you're looking at is God happen, learning. So. Yeah. Everybody likes to think of God as someone who can't, who doesn't experience um, maturity. That's not true. He didn't, he had not experienced sinful man and having to endure against it. And what, when he says God was sorrowful that he made man, or he said it when they tried to kill Moses many times, and then he said it in, in, in of course, in Genesis as well. He was sorrowful, like he was. He was, he was vexed in himself. Mm-hmm. What you're looking at is God experiencing what he knew. Right? He knew the gravity of the sinfulness of humanity. He understood that it was going to be difficult. He understood that he would hate sin. But he had never felt it. So until he felt it, what, he, what you're seeing in Genesis and in, in, in Exodus and all these places, Numbers, where you see God hurting and painting Name Jeremiah, when he's saying, I'm going to turn my face, I'm going to be weeping for you, but I'm going to judge you properly. And I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to let you see my tears. What you're seeing is God experiencing, uh, striving against a sinful existence. Mm-hmm. And it's hurtful and it's painful and he hates it. And at the same time, he's also being accused of being unrighteous because yes. nobody understood the plan. Satan being the accuser not only of the brother, but of God himself. He's accusing God of not doing what's right. Of course, that's what Romans 3 unfolds so, uh, so beautifully for us. Um, 321 through 26, that God set forth Christ as a 
sacrifice, right, of his blood through faith to demonstrate something, to demonstrate his righteousness, right? So God wanted to demonstrate that he was in fact righteous. Because why? Because in the forbearance of God, he passed over sins previously committed, right? So God had to prove in time that he was a righteous God. And until that point for 4,000 years, he was having to put up with Satan, nagging him in the ear, saying, You're, you haven't done what's right for 4,000 years. He not only forgave Adam, but then he forgave Cain for murdering Abel. He protected Cain. And then so forth and so on. And so God looks like he's batting, you know, one, maybe. You know, all these people are getting away with sin and God's doing nothing about it. He's protecting him. He's giving them promises. He's not a righteous. He's a loving God, but not a righteous God in Satan's mindset. But Satan didn't know about Christ. He didn't understand that truth. And that's the common faith we have. That's what he's pointing to. Well, Satan could only understand righteousness. No, Christ. I said Satan could only understand righteousness. And so he only understood one thing. If you sin, you die, right? If you break the law, you die. And so he expected God to keep the law. And God didn't keep the law at that time. He kept the law later. He kept the law because he killed Jesus. Jesus is the solution to his love. God so loved the world. Problem. The, pro the solution is killing your son. How's the solution to love killing your son? Because it's a problem. You can't love and not be righteous. If somebody murders, you know, somebody's wife or husband in this room and you go to the judge and the judge says, I just want to be loving. I'll tell you what, we're just going to let you go and we'll put a bull in prison for you. You'd think the judge is not righteous. You can't let him go. In fact, I'm going to protect him. I'm going to protect this guy. Nobody touches him. Would you feel very good about the judge? Would anybody feel good? No. You'd think, it's a crackpot judge. I want to smack him upside his head. Right? In fact, you might want to kill him. Because he's letting the murderer get away. Well, this is what God did. And this is how Satan felt. And he hated God for not killing Adam. And he hated God for not killing Cain. And all the angels are sitting around like, no, I don't know what the heck's going on. I mean... That's why you, what you see is Satan didn't trust God because at some point God said, basically, I got this covered, trust me. And Michael and Gabriel said, I do trust you. So you have the angels who didn't fall, who trusted God and said, we'll wait and see. And Satan said, I'm not waiting to see anything. You didn't do what was right. I don't trust you. You should go down. And that's why he fought against him. And he lost because God didn't lose his glory. He lost because God didn't lose his righteousness because in God's plan, him being God, he's got, you know, executive privileges. <laughs> that means that he can love somebody here and pay for their sin here and it still be righteous. Whereas in our little existence, righteousness has to come quick. Right? Judgment has to come quick. In God's mind, he can... He can Pay for it 4,000 years later. And it's fine with him. And thankfully he did. Because all of our sins were paid for through that death. Right? So that's the common faith by the righteousness of our God and Savior, 
Jesus Christ. And by the way, he is our God and our Savior. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the epinosis, the true knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. So a nice salutation. By the way, this was a beautiful, most wonderful thing I think I've ever done when it comes to singing, for sure, in a neighborhood to a bunch of strangers. This weekend, um, what was it? It was that morning. Or excuse me, it was Tuesday, uh, Halloween day, you know. I had it in my heart in the morning. First thing I woke up, I was singing. I I wake up every morning and I have a song in my head. Like, I wake up to a worship song every morning. And... um, an exception of maybe occasionally, but most of the time I have a worship song. It's always, it could be something same and it could be something different, uh, similar. And this, that morning I was, I was singing a, um, uh, a song of blessing. It was a different song than Ellie was singing, was speaking of. And so I thought to myself, man, would it be neat if we go out and sing to the neighbors a blessing to uh, during Halloween time, so that totally throw them off guard. It'd be, it'd be wonderful. Like turn this this frown upside down on this this crazy holiday, right? Where everybody's worshiping the devil and ghouling around and doing nonsense. It's like, wouldn't it be great to like sh- just sing blessing to these people? And I was sitting there brushing my teeth, and Beth sent me a text, "Ding, hey Greg, give me a call when you get a second. I mean, I had the thought as soon as I completed thought, started brushing my teeth. She t- she was like, "Hey, Ellie just had a thought." She goes, um, she was thinking that why don't we, tonight, was to go around, why don't we sing um, a blessing, <laughs> a song of blessing uh, to the neighbors. And I was like, I had the same thought 15 minutes ago. And she's on the, in the truck, for, you know, driving down the road. I said, that's funny, I just had the same thought. So we, what we sing now. Um, blessing. Yeah. Yeah, the, the song, The Blessing. We just sang the first to the first verse twice. Um, it's just, just a few minutes, but it was absolutely phenomenal. So when you see this grace and peace to you, be multiplied to you in the true knowledge, we sang, you know, the Lord bless you, Lord keep you, make his face shine upon you, be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. And we sang that twice, you know, according to with the music. And then that was it. And just said, God bless you and walked away. And, Every time, it was absolutely stunning. I'd never seen anything like it. I've never experienced anything like it. The people were st- like stunned, and they would start crying. And and the strangers, we never, and they were just they were calling their their relatives to the door, and they were crying, and they were you know like they got done. They were like, D- don't stop, you know, <laughs> don't stop, keep like- saying. Can we, can we give you candy? Like, yeah, what can I do? Yes. No, just want to... It was absolutely one of the neatest and the most amazing thing because you bring in this dark, sort of a holiday of weird weird holidays, weird pagan holiday. You bring this light into this moment. And I've never seen it done. I've never done it before. It just came into my mind. My mind. And it was one of the most amazing things. So that to me now, when you see grace and peace be multiplied to you, that is more meaningful when you see how impactful... Yeah. That can be when you got a group of people come and just singing it. It was funny. We would come to the door and we'd have, like, it was a bigger group than this, or about this size, I guess, maybe a little bigger. And we would come to the door and they were like, oh, big group, you know, oh, okay. Uh, like, they were kind of confused because only, like, half the neighborhood showed up, you know. And like, it's like three kids. Yeah, it's like three children coming to get some candy. We're like, we let them get the candy. We're like, okay. 
You mind if we uh, sing to you tonight? And they're like, oh yeah. Everybody was like, oh yeah, that'd be great. And we sing and it was just immediately tears well from the eyes. They still, people were holding it together. Some of them had to take deep breaths from like breaking down and weeping. It was crazy. I, it was one of the most amazing things. So for him to say grace and peace be multiplied to you is a very meaningful thing after experiencing something like that. Um, and of course, it has to be, of course, within the, 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 uh, the parameters of the true knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says this. This is why this would be true. Verse 3. This is what we're heading toward. Seeing something. You know, why would he say grace and peace be multiplied to you in this particular kind of knowledge? Right? This parameters of this knowledge. Verse 3 says, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So let's break that down for you. It's very simple. He goes, I'm wishing you multiplied grace and peace in respect to the knowledge of God and Jesus Christ since it's in that, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to the life of God. Now, when somebody says, well, you know, I just wish I understood more about how to live life or how to walk godly, it's all here. And it's all here because the gospel is the foundation of understanding how to walk it. Not in some rules, but it's an understanding of how to present yourself as a child of God in a slave body, in a fallen world, in the anticipation of Jesus Christ coming. All the knowledge is here. And it's a relational knowledge. It's not a religious knowledge or a scripted knowledge or a law-like knowledge. It's how do I relate to my Father in heaven and to my brother who is Christ, who is Lord over everything. How do I relate to them now in this body, on this earth, in this place at this time? Right? This helps me understand that. That's why it says life and godliness. Through the epinosis. And it uses true knowledge because it's true knowledge as opposed to just knowledge. And he says, but, huh? You say the word everything. Mm-hmm. To me, when I see that, it's like you get everything. Everything. In uh, pertaining to life. Like yep. all of life. How to live life everything in every way. Is here. Husband, wife, life. Yes. kids, work, everything. All of life. Play, hobbies, fun, you know, health, everything. I mean, there's the, 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 the epino, the everything between life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. And then he says, who called us by his own glory and excellence. Now, the verse four, he it takes the words glory and excellence and he calls them these. For by these, these are glory and excellence. For by these, that is the glory and excellence, he has granted to us his precious and, mag- and magnificent promises. There's that promise going all the way back to Adam. Then Abraham, right? Or Noah, Abraham, Enoch, if you go back further, Methuselah, Lamech, all these guys, right? And then you go forward, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so forth and so on. All these magnificent promises of this person who's going to be the seed, uh, who's going to come forth, and he's going to be the blessing to the nations, this person who's going to 
die and pay for sins, this person who's going to be exalted and going to rule the nations and bring in everlasting righteousness and peace and so forth and so on. All these promises were fulfilled in Christ. Then he says, for by these promises, these precious and magnificent promises, he goes, uh, he, he has granted, excuse me, for by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become a partner of the divine nature. All right, there's the key. A partner of the divine nature. That goes back to what I was saying. Now, every writer tends to use different language. And that's, I'm happy because there's a, a comprehensiveness to that, right? Paul says you're a new man created katathion or according to God. Right? And that's why they translate it in Ephesians 4.24 in the likeness of God. Because they don't know how to... How do you, how do you translate katathion? If you're created according to wood, what are you? If you're created according to metal, what are you? If you're created according to God, what are you? You're God's child. You're of His essence. Right? You're born of Him. You don't see or enter heaven unless you're what? Born from? Above. John 3, Jesus said it Himself. You don't see it, you don't enter it, unless God births you from himself. And the result of him birthing you from himself is that you're like him in the essence of your spiritual existence. Now, that doesn't mean you know everything and you're everywhere and you have a mighty power. That's his distinctive attributes. But as far as holiness and righteousness and goodness and purity and eternality and all those types of things, that's what he made us in the likeness of. Right? Hmm? Yes, we bear God's DNA. As we learned last week in, in 1 John, that anyone who is born of God, is, you know, his seed, his sperm, is the Greek word, sperma abides in him. And he uses the word sperm on purpose because when you understand sperm, you understand DNA. When you understand DNA, you're getting an understanding of what it means to be a partner in the divine nature. You're a partner. To be born of God is to be a partner in the divine nature spiritually, not physically. It will be physically, right? Our new bodies will be just like Christ's new body and that his body is certainly a partner in the divine nature. So you're not just subjectively God's child. You are literally right. his child. That's why John says, you know, in, in, in chapter 3, he says, isn't it a wonderful thing that we're called the children of God? And such we are, Right? It's not just that you're called subjectively. You know, God sees you as his child. You are, in fact, his child, spiritually. And you have to understand, if we all died right now, we popped out of our bodies, our bodies would be laying there, lifeless, but we would all see them, and we would all see who we actually are. And you'd understand that your body's not you. You understand that your spirit is you, and your body's just a shell. The body is an upgrade to a spiritual existence. In other words, there's some quality of upgrade blessing that comes with a, with a body that makes it a better existence to have a spiritually resurrected body than just a spiritual existence without it. But the body is not who I am. Everybody in heaven right now doesn't have a body except who? Jesus. Jesus, Jesus is the only person with a physical body right now until the resurrection. Uh, is it like uh, raising my arm, a spirit raising its arm in the... Plus, is this on top of it, or is it? It's like, 
the bones in the, in the, in the, in the body, if you will, for lack of a better illustration. For by these, he has granted to us precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become a partner. In other words, if you believe the common faith of God in Christ and that he has written, you can become a partner of the divine nature. The result of that is having escaped the corruption that's in the world in, in respect to desire. The word lust is desire. It always bothers me when they translate it lust because it's like gives it this nasty negative connotation. And desire can be a lust, but that doesn't mean it is a lust. In fact, it's the same Greek word used of it is a good thing to desire the office of an overseer. So it'd be weird if they translated to lust for that. Yeah, to lust. <laughs> it is a good thing to lust for the office of an overseer. It's like when they it's like they want to be dramatic here and translate everything lust. So you missed the point. We've escaped the corruption that's in the world through desire. Because my spirit does not desire. My spirit does not desire the world. Right? My spirit does not desire the things of the world. Because my spirit is bound to God, has the love of God poured out into my heart. I have the righteousness of God written on my heart, and therefore my spirit is free from the desires of the world. But my body is not. My brain is not. But my spirit is, and thus that is the dilemma. That is the battle. That's where the fight is. The fight, the front line is me against my, my spirit against my flesh or me against myself. He says, I have escaped it. But do I believe that? Right? Do I believe it in the moment? Because that's the issue. Or do I let my emotional state or how I feel about the situation determine my behavior because I don't feel like I've escaped the desires that link me to the world? The worries, the, the uh, ambitions, all those desires that come about and want to take me away from my settledness in Christ, my rejoicing in the magnificent promises. And if I believe these promises, God has made me a new creation. He's forgiven me of my sins. He's paid for my sins. He's reconciled me to himself through Jesus Christ and made me a new creation by an act of his power, as he says here, his divine power. And thus I've escaped because I've become a partner in the, of the divine nature, I've escaped the, the corruptions in the world through desire. That's when you see someone who doesn't, who hasn't escaped the desires of the world. Like 1 John chapter 2 says, if anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is what? Not in him. Not in him. Why? Because he hasn't escaped the desires of the world. That means he hasn't been a, become a partner of the divine nature. That means he has not been made new. He's not a new creation, or he or she, whoever, right? So, this is the point. He says, now, anybody have a question on this so far? Clear as mud? Right? Okay. 
<laughs> now for this very reason. He says, now for this very reason, apply all diligence in your what? Faith. Faith. And this is key. If you miss this, you will become religious as opposed to a person who walks intellectually with God. After you believe this, you become a partner of the divine nature. After you understand that you've escaped the corruption that's in the world through desire. And you've walked this out. You're not allowing your flesh to deceive you, pull you back into the world, all this stuff. He says, for this reason, that you have become a partner of the divine nature, that you have escaped, escaped the corruption that's in the world through desire, for that reason, apply all diligence or assiduousness in your belief. You have to go back and go, believe this man, he says, and be diligent to believe it because when, again, when the trials of life hit, that's the moment you ask yourself, do I believe this, right? Is it, am I firm in this faith? Am I strong in respect to this belief? That's okay, just pop it. So, <laughs> that's why you have to be diligent to believe. Diligent to believe. A diligent faith is the most important thing to have because you're, you're seeking to understand what to believe. Remember what I said, I've said a million times, you read the scriptures to what? Believe, believe it. You read the scriptures to believe it and you believe it like a child. child. You read the scriptures to believe and you, read, and you believe it like a child. And if you do that, you'll actually, you'll actually see the clarity of the scripture. It'll be very simple to you. If you read it to know it, you're, you're going to waste a lot of time. If you read it to understand it, you're going to waste a lot of time. If you read it to believe it, you're going to come to understand it and you're going to come to know it. Right? If you read it to believe it. It's like reading a manual on how to work a TV uh, for, with a remote. You can read it to know it, study it, break it down, diagram it. Or you can read it to believe it and you're like, okay, it says push the button here. So where's the remote? Okay, push the button and link it to the TV. Got it. You know, boom. In other words, most people read to believe what they're, when they're trying to apply themselves to accomplish something, right? This thing says, move this button here or touch this button here and unlatch this thing and push this thing and whatever. Most people read to believe when they actually want to accomplish something. But so often with the scriptures, it becomes this, read it to know it. Read it just to read it. Read it because you read your Bible 30 minutes a day. But if you read it to believe it, you have to know it and you have to understand it to believe it. So that means you will struggle to get to the point where you know it and understand it so you can believe it. And when you believe it, you believe it like a child. Again, that, that, that takes all the, the nonsense away. Now you're seeking to know a person because the scriptures is a means to an end. You're getting to know this person. God is a person. He's not a human, but he's a person, right? And so you're getting to know him. He wrote down some information. He wants you to understand his belief about the world, his belief about salvation, his belief about you, his belief about his relationship with you. And he wrote it down so you get to know him, right? 
John 17, Jesus said, this is eternal life. What? That you know the Father and His Son whom He sent. That's eternal life. That's what it means. It's to have a relationship with a person. So when you read it, you're reading it to believe it because this person wrote it who wants you to know him and he wants to know you. You're reading it to, un, to, to and you're trying to believe it like a child because that's the way he said to believe it. Because if he says, hey, I've killed you and made you new and you never even saw any of it take place. It takes a child's faith to believe it, right? Because you didn't see it. You see God ripped your spirit out that your mother further birth, kill it, throw it in the grave, crucify it with Jesus. No one saw that. I didn't see it. I felt peace and joy and love and happiness. It happened that fast. He took it out, put a new one in. Bam, I was saved. That's what happened. And he describes on this micro level what he does. Well, I circumcised it. I ripped it out and I killed it and I made a new one from my own divine nature. You became a partner of the divine nature and I slammed it in the body. And that's you. Now you're my beloved child spiritually. And, and, and I left you in the body in order to present yourself back to me. And you're supposed to believe that? If you're in a, you know, an intellectual, that, you're going to struggle. But if you read it to believe it, you go, wow, that's amazing. I'm a partner of the divine nature. And I've escaped the corruption that's in the world through desire. Phenomenal. Why? Because he killed me and I was dead with Christ and raised with Christ and new creation and all this wonderful stuff. Praise God. I was a sinner and I was saved by his sacrifice. Hallelujah. I didn't see any of that happen. But... How do I know it happened? God told us. Huh? But I know it happens. Why? Because I love him. Right? He, as he says so, many, so often, he says, he says, not that we loved him first, but he loved us first, right? Now we love him. We know this, that we're children of God, that we actually love him. And is it rational? Though we, as Peter said, though we have not seen him, we love him. Isn't that weird? I don't feel that way about anybody. I don't, there's no other, you know, entity that that could possibly happen with. I don't love a deity. Why do I love this person called Jesus Christ? Why am I devoted to this individual to have a relationship with him, having never met him, having never seen him? Because he's poured his love out into my heart and I cannot escape him loving him. I want to love him. He's my friend. He's my brother. God is my father. I love them. That's not a choice I get now. Right? It's not a choice. I don't just, you just don't choose to turn off that. That was a gift. That was his gift put into me. So it takes a child to believe. And if you approach God as a child, then you will in fact mature and grow and come to a mature faith. And you have to. That's why he says this. And this is so important in what he says. Be diligent in your faith. And then you can supply all the rest of the junk, right? Whatever applies in the moment. Be diligent to believe the truth of what he said about you, what he's done, who he is, what he accomplished. What is it, John? Uh, so you know how in, when Jesus is talking, he says it's more difficult to put a camel through an eagle's eye than for a rich man to yeah. 
Would you say that for people who are, say, rich in knowledge? Well, well, that's true. But, but the second part of that statement is, but with you know, with man this is impossible. With yeah. God, all things are possible. Right? That's the next part of the statement. But that makes my point that God's the one who has to have the power to do it because it's not humanly accomplished. Yeah. Right. In fact, just to point that out. I have a funny statement about God being like, by the way, these people are a headache. <laughs> one of my favorite one of my favorite verses concerning that reality is in the first chapter of John the gospel of John where he says um, verse verse 12 and 13 chapter 1 he says he's, he's cruising through this great little opening line but he says something very clear, and this is the theme of John, right? That you have to be a child of God or born from above to, to really be in God's family. This isn't a religious club, right? So he says, but as many as received him, to, that, to the, them he gave the power or the authority, excuse me. The Greek word is authority. He gave the authority to become what? Children of God. Even to those who believe in his name. Then he says this. Who were not born. Uh, who were not born. Not, uh, excuse me. Who were born not of blood. That is to say not from a lineage or a genealogy. Nor of the will of the flesh. Nor of the will of a man. Just in case somebody wants to argue over some distinctive of the nature of the concept of flesh. He then expands that to the fullness of the man. But of God. You're born of God. This is what we learn. This is what we constantly see. It is not a man who makes this happen. God gives us his truth. And he says this. I've infused in the gospel the power to believe. And if you receive it and believe it, then I will forgive you of your sins because of Jesus' death and apply that to you. And then I will kill you with him and raise you with him and make you my child eternally now. And I promise to give you a body that matches it later. Right? That's what saves you. You're saved because you're a child of God partaking in the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world through desire. And that birth is from God, not from blood, not from the will of the flesh, not from, not from man, the will of man, but of God. Now you turn back to Peter. We'll wrap this last little section up here. 2 Peter 1. He says, now after you choose to believe this and you work hard to believe this because the gospel has to be the foundation of, of your life and the, how you apply yourself. He says, after you believe this and work hard to believe this, then you can supply stuff like moral excellence. But you're only supplying moral excellence because that's what fits the moment. That's what makes sense in the moment. Why would you supply moral excellence? Because we're children of God. Because your spirit is created morally excellent. You're supplying moral excellence through the body because your spirit has already escaped the corruption and is, in fact, morally excellent. 
So I'm supplying that as a, a behavior based upon my faith that he just said to work hard to believe. Right? Then he says, and in your moral excellence, knowledge. Understand what it means to look like in a, being morally excellent and how that works itself out. And your knowledge, self-control. Right? He's only using a few words here. He could use 50. Self-control. In your self-control, and I'm, I'm going to buzz through here because I want to get to the, I want to focus more on verses 8 and 9. In your, uh, in your um, self-control, perseverance, because it's, you persevere in self-control because sometimes self-control means you're having to hold yourself in position as you're serving Christ because you're receiving some sort of difficulty or negative implications um, or as a husband or a, a mother to kids or whatever, it's sometimes you have to persevere having self-control uh, because you know what to do and so you're supplying moral excellence. If you go backwards with this, it's the way to look at it, right? And we'll look at it backwards and forwards. But he says, um, in perseverance, godliness, because you want to be godly in the way you're persevering. You don't want to be persevering with a scowl on your face like... There's two kinds of perseverance, right? It's the gritty kind, and there's the contented, <coughs> take a deep breath and relax kind, and do it with a godlikeness. Godliness is being like God in the behavior of the moment. And your godliness, brotherly kindness. So he expands and says, okay, not just love, but brotherly kindness, which is more of an affectionate, tender, and intimate love. And in your brotherly kindness, Love, which is agape, which is the kind of love that loves an enemy and a friend and expands past just brotherly kindness, right? Because you might need to apply agape as opposed to phileo because phileo doesn't love an enemy, but agape will love an enemy by choice. God doesn't say like your enemies. You don't have to like them. You just have to choose to act in love to them. In this way, God's wrath is storing up against his enemies and Jesus Christ is going to judge his enemies. But God's love at this time is prevailing upon all of his enemies. Even while we were enemies of, of God and he saved us, as, as Romans 5 says. So it is his love that is allowing people to have the opportunity for salvation. And we are to mimic that. Now, there's a lot we could go for a few weeks just on breaking down those words. But nonetheless, I want to get to verses 8 and 9. For if, the, if these, if these, and it does say qualities, if these are yours, if these are yours, these, you know, these basic manifestations of your faith, this love, this brotherly kindness, this godliness and perseverance, with self-control, knowledge, based in knowledge, and that knowledge resulting in moral excellence. Because you believe what God has done, because you believe you're a partner of the divine nature. If you have these, right? If you have these, if, if, um, for if these are yours and are increasing, let's say you're maturing in them, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's encouraging. In other words, there's a process to maturing and growing. And as you mature and grow and apply your faith, then you are going to be useful to the Lord. Everybody's like, oh, I want to be useful. I want to be useful. They think that that's somehow restricted to just like in the church. Setting up chairs, singing on a Sunday, 
whatever. No, no, it's every day of your life in respect to how you treat your wife, how do you treat your husband, how you raise your kids, right? How you relate to your uh, peers, your employees, people in your hobbies, your friends, your neighbors. Every day of your life, you can be useful. He goes, however, in verse nine, he who lacks these qualities or lacks these, not qualities, but these expressions of faith is what it should say. Whoever lacks these is blind, and it's a specific kind of blindness. It's, in the Greek, it's a being short-sighted. It's a participle. Blind being, not or short-sighted, but blind being short-sighted. So the short-sightedness is defining the kind of blindness the person has. They're not blind in that they need to be saved. It's just that they're only looking at what's right in front of them as opposed to the big picture of God's maturity. Does God work everything out for your good? Yes. yes. So there's a big picture, right? Can God lead you into a trial that he knows you're going to fail so you can grow? Yes. Sometimes God takes you a long way so you can pick up things along the way. That's the whole point, right? You're guaranteed to fail on throwing a football the first time no matter how much you've been taught, Right? You pick up a football the first time, are you going to throw it very well? No. I don't care how. You can sit in school for 10 years, study every aspect of how to throw a football. Until you throw it for the first time, it's, it's going to be ugly. Right? It's never good. You're pushing it. You're throwing it down. You're throwing it up. The finger doesn't roll off right. Whatever. It's not going to be good. It doesn't matter how much you know. It's not going to work out. So a trial proves to you that you're ready for the trial because you know enough. But it also shows you that you don't know, uh, you're not skilled, right? So the trial only shows you where you're at in the process of maturity, which is showing you that you're not mature yet. So, because you failed. You say, oh, oh, oh my God, I can't believe, oh, I thought I knew. Knowledge is growth in the Bible. Maturity is based upon the application and the successful application of that knowledge in a context of life. And you cannot mature without a context of life. Knowledge does not mature you. Trials based upon the knowledge mature. You, you can't, if you have a trial without knowledge, you're not going to grow. You have to have the knowledge and then you have to have the, the context. Right? And so this is what he's saying. But if, you're, if you have a context that comes up and you're not mature in the way you're looking at things, you're not seeing, you're not relaxed, you're not at peace with yourself, you're not at peace with your relationship with God. You're not sitting back and just breathing in and saying, look at the big picture. If you're only looking at what's right in front of you, I'm about to lose it, this is happening, that is happening, I'm uncomfortable, whatever it is, blah, 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 blah. If you're looking at only what's right in front of you, you're short-sighted. You're going to render yourself useless in the moment. That's what he's talking about. And that's true. If you don't take time, you can, it's okay to look close and then look back. And then look close again and then look big. Keep looking back and forth until you see everything clear. And then present yourself according to the reality of the moment. We have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him, but it doesn't matter without a context, right? Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. You have to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ by being successful. And if you want to you want to know how to be successful, do this. Pick one area of your life, just one thing. That, that you don't apply your love and your faith and whatever accurate in and master applying yourself accurately in that one area. And if you do that, it'll spill over because you'll, you'll have success, right? If you think about, I've got to learn how to play football. 
That's overwhelming. But if you say, I've got to learn how to throw a football, that's manageable, right? And show, uh, because you can just learn how to throw it first. And then you can learn how to throw a go route. You can learn how to throw a hitch route, right? You can learn how to throw certain routes, let's say five or six routes. And then you can actually, after you learn how to throw certain routes, then you can go and play in a game. Is that first game going to go very well? <laughs> no, it's not going to go well. Even though you've practiced, and even though, because your nerves are going to get to you, right? You thought, I thought I was ready. I thought I was ready. Nerves, you can't get over experience. It takes time to build it. So God puts you in these experiences to show you that you're just now getting started. Now, after a while, you get matured. A trial is no longer a trial because your nerves are gone, you're skilled at it, and you're cruising along. But there's always the next trial and that refines you. And though they may seem less intense, they're still refining you and perfecting the, the, the presentation, uh, your spirit's maturity so as to present yourself in a lovely and godly and magnificent way as a light in the world. So he says that short-sightedness, he says, however it can, uh, it results in having forgotten his purification from his former sins. That goes back to he, you're not thinking about who you are, right? You're not thinking about the reality of the situation. You're not thinking about who you are, that you are now a partner. That you, you're purified. If you forgot that, then you're going to then start making decisions and or presenting yourself in a way that's not according to who you actually are spiritually. So he says this. Um, verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain his about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. It's encouraging. It's true. You won't stumble if you practice these things. It doesn't mean you won't that you're not going to learn, right? That your feet are always going to be firmly planted. It just means that you are, you're not going to fall headlong, right? You're not going to fall headlong because you understand who you are. You have the basis of the gospel right. You have everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him. Oh, baby, baby. And we have we have cramp we have cramp going on here. Doesn't mean you won't have cramp. Doesn't mean you won't have a cramp. Go drink some water, buddy. All right. Pray for him. himself. All right. Does anybody have any questions on all that? Pretty simple. Pretty simple stuff. Yeah. Clear as mud. All right. Well, uh, let's. Um, Let's pray. Are there any prayer requests? Yeah, we can. Uh, verse 11. It, it, uh, <laughs> For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, will be abundantly supplied to you. That's beautiful. Yeah. Right yeah. Yeah. In other words, God's working with you. He's caring for you. He's supplying your need. He's, if you ask for wisdom, you get it if you believe. You need comfort, He's providing it. You need guidance, the Holy Spirit's there to guide. You need prayer, the Holy Spirit's praying on your behalf to work it out for your good, right? I mean, we're covered. Jesus sticks closer than a brother. God loves us more than we could possibly imagine. So does Christ. 
We are beloved. Satan cannot lay a finger on us, 1 John 5, right? I mean, we are covered. All we have to do is focus in on how to walk out our belief in the everyday aspects of life. And in that, you will actually become useful in the kingdom. That's not defined by how your religious behavior is. It's not, that's not defined by going to a church and doing something there. God says your usefulness is in how you apply yourself in the simple daily acts of life and love toward the people around you. That is how you're useful to him. And if you have that mindset, you'll actually care about every second of your life as opposed to just those moments when you're going to do something. Understand your whole life is a life of service to God because you're a son in the servant flesh. And your life is to present that flesh according to that reality. Just live in that reality. So, all right, amen.